fruits worthy of repentance, Lord, that we would also uh, have joy awakened within us. Lord, to, to rejoice in your redemptive plan as it's been made manifest in this world, to, to see the book of Ezekiel or to see the book of Philippians for the youth group and understand what it looks like when the Holy Spirit infiltrates the life of a human being, grabs hold of a heart, gives it new life, and spreads your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, God, that we have the privilege to be a part of that tonight. And uh, we pray that we would take full advantage of this wonderful, gracious opportunity we have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good evening, everyone. Tonight we begin in Ezekiel chapter 16. Oftentimes in our study of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, we can get bogged down um, in all of the judgment. And one reason is just because culturally we're not as comfortable with God as judge as they were in Ezekiel's day. Um, and another reason is because um, because we've probably by now, especially traveling through Jeremiah and Isaiah, kind of figured this whole judgment thing out. We know the crimes, we know the punishment, we know how it played out on the pages of history, we know the major players, um, and so it can, feel, uh, it can feel redundant, it can feel like a little much, and one of the reasons is because although the books of our Bible were made to be read all together, the oracles or the prophecies that make them up were spanned across a lifetime. I actually think this is one of the biggest, um, biggest mistakes we make in reading our Bible and seeking to live lives that reflect the people of this God, uh, is that we forget how much time it covers. You know, so for example, we read about Abraham and every other page God is appearing to him, speaking to him, making these amazing promises. But when you pause and you put it across the timeline, God appears, you know, at the Oaks of Mamre, and then 10 years later, he speaks to Abraham again. It's just we read it back to back and we think through. Um, and I would suggest that a helpful tool to kind of get uh, the significance of the repetition and the redundancy um, and the multifaceted or, or the various nature of the ways that Ezekiel speaks, again, is an expression of, uh, of God's goodness, his desire for repentance, his patience, his endurance, his not leaving himself without a witness. However, 
if, uh, if the passages of intense judgment feel a little much, tonight might be the most challenging of all. Because without contest, Ezekiel 16 is the most damning indictment of Israel ever recorded. It's in language so graphic, your translators couldn't handle it and dialed it way back because the language of Ezekiel here would make us all blush. Uh, Here he utilizes the imagery of God as a faithful husband to a foundling, right? To an abandoned child, to somebody who has been left and exposed uh, and then raised and then married and then uh, becomes, uh, I mean, I don't think there's another word besides nymphomaniac, Uh, becomes this kind of sexual devourous, um, not just unfaithful, but over-the-top adulterous. Um, And the thing that we need to keep in mind here uh, is, is to understand the crimes of Israel. It's not just the graphic language he uses that gets us there. It's the juxtaposition. It's the faithful husband versus the unfaithful wife. It's Israel's beginning versus what they did with that beginning. It's God's initial grace and then their ungrateful response. That's where all of the weight of this uh, passage is. But like I said, as we will see, Ezekiel pulls no punches. And so he picks up here in chapter 16, again, the word of the Lord came to me. Okay. Like I suggested as we were just talking, that again may hit you like, again? Right? But remember that it is another expression of God's appeal for repentance, of his faithful witness. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Now, the word there, abominations, toabah, is... Uh, most heavily peppered through the book of Leviticus. It speaks of things that are um, diametrically opposed to clean things. And so unclean is a little bit uh, mild. And I know outside of the abominable snowman, we have no modern abominations, unless you're like a snobby architecture student. That's the only place I can imagine it being used. Um, But what it's really expressing is something that is defiling to the nth degree, okay? Something that cultivates almost a ritual disgust. And he says, let's make them known to Jerusalem, verse 3, and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And that probably sounds like a Monty Python insult. That's what I always hear when I read it. Um, but the idea here, what Ezekiel 16 is, is parabolic. It's, it's actually more like a fairy tale with a big moral. He tells the history of Israel, uh, and he doesn't actually stick to the historical script. But he's trying to make a point, and again, he uses language very strongly to do that. So, for example, here he says, Jerusalem your parents, your heritage, your genealogy is Canaanite. It's Amorite and Hittite, okay? 
Now, if we were talking about Jewish genealogy, you can't actually trace that line. The Canaanites aren't where Israel comes from. Remember, Abraham comes from the land of Ur and comes to dwell in the land of the Canaanites. But he's not talking about here um, the inhabitants of Jerusalem as Jews. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem personified. And as you may remember, Jerusalem was originally a city named Jebus. Okay, it was a Canaanite stronghold that David conquers and takes for his own. What Ezekiel's doing here is playing with that heritage to make a point. Okay? Um, he basically says, you've lived out your ancestry, not in their bloodstream, but as a city, it's fitting, it's suitable. But when it begins here, notice here, that's their heritage. But look at this, verse 4. But as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. That's the umbilical cord. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay. If you've ever been around the birth of a baby, there's a whole bunch of medicinal and non-medicinal rituals that take place involved in that. And they're not just good uh, postnatal care. They also express and convey something. This child is mine. I'm responsible for it. I'm committed to caring for it. In fact, in some ancient Near East legal documents, leaving a child in its blood, which we'll see that language in a minute, in other words, not washing it after it's born, was not just some sort of medical danger or neglect, it was actually a disowning of the child. Okay. It's the first step of exposure, which is the old word for child abandonment. And so what happens here is the origin of Jerusalem, the origin of the Jews here, uh, is a neglected baby. Verse 5, No, I pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you abhorred on the day that you were born. Now, this... Uh, can seem somewhat unbelievable to us today that a child would be abandoned. Of course, we have other ways of dealing with unwanted children, and we probably still remember the Hollywood stories of babies left on church porches and things like this. Um, but that's not what this is. And in the ancient world, across cultures, exposure, which again is just leaving a child out in the elements to die, was a common occurrence um, and so here, this story is relatable, not because there's necessarily people in Ezekiel's audience who said, I've been there, but they know of the practice, they understand it, and they know how heinous it is. And so here is a baby with no one to love them, claim them, protect them, care for them, which is what? A death sentence, right? It's an end right after the beginning. But notice verse 6, and when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant in the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And so not only is, uh, you know, the character here that God personifies himself through, uh, not only does he see this child, but he takes it in. It's not his child, it's merely and totally an act of grace. It's not because the child belongs to him uh, or is beautiful or is valuable. Uh, it's just an innate 
adoptive act of grace. God just chooses to have favor and to bring life upon this child. It continues here, and you grew up and you became tall and arrived at full adornment, which actually means you came to menstruate. Uh, It says that uh, you became tall, arrived at full adornment, your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Okay, now remember, we're being parabolic here. The story doesn't have to make historical sense. But now, through this initial investment of God, we have a fully mature adult, but still naked and bare, which, uh, which speaks again of, of unprotection and neglect. And so notice verse 8, when I passed by again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Now, in traditional Jewish settings, this idea of spreading a garment over someone is not just an expression of clothing or, or even of protection. It's part of the marital ceremony. In fact, some Jewish weddings still have uh, a vow that's brought, or a, 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 a veil that's brought over the uh, couple while they're being married. But the idea here is one, again, just like the neglect we saw earlier, of taking responsibility for not just clothing once, but committing to clothe for the rest of their days. It's a wedding vow. In fact, he says, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Now, I want you to notice two things as we're moving along here. Um, first is, in this initial story, The child, the baby, the foundling, now the bride, is relatively passive. We don't see any actions. We don't even see a crying out or an asking for help. God is the primary actor in this first half. He sees, he meets the need, he flourishes, he commits to, he makes a covenant to. And he says, at that point you became mine, verse 9, then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And so not only does he clothe this woman, but he clothes her royally. He covers her in jewelry and fine clothing. He continues here, he says in verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil, um, which are, you know, uh, which are, wealthy foods, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Okay, and so here we see kind of the elevation of Israel due to God's love, their adornment and their beauty. If we wanted to stretch this across the Israel of history, be thinking about the days of David and Solomon where there was an international renown and respect for Israel, where the Queen of Sheba comes from a long distance and says, I had heard not even half of the truth of the glory of Israel. And so again, we see God as primary actor here, and we see Israel solely as recipient of all of these gifts. Verse 14, your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, 
for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Notice that statement there roots the beauty of this person, if you will, in God's hard work, in his investment. It's not as if God came along and had an eye for talent and said, that one's going to be a looker. I'm going to take care of this one. No, it's he had, he had done all of the work and invested all of this beauty and built this beautiful reputation. But, verse 15, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings. Okay, so now we move on and Israel becomes an actor and instead it's going to be God who is passive. And so, again, I would suggest to you the best way to read this is with God's initiative acts and then Israel's response. And so if you're envisioning a set of scales, you know, hanging in the balance, we have all of these good things that God has done. Finding the abandoned Jerusalem, giving it life, raising it from a child, taking it under his wing as his bride, adorning it with beauty and feeding it sumptuously until the renown was great and they were treated like royalty. But notice it says that they trust in their beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Now, read that for what it is, not just, um, not just sexual infidelity, but disturbing, imbalanced, an improper reaction. Again, because we're using a parable and not real life, I hate to use the word in, ingracious, you know, without gratitude, uh, because that's a weird thing to say about somebody who asks to marry you. But in this context, that's the juxtaposition. God does all these things for Israel, commits to Israel, invests in Israel, and their response is to take their love elsewhere. Their response here, it says, is to play the whore. And when it says there, lavished your whorings, um, uh, it's, it's pushing into this idea of prostitution. And we'll see that it builds on this. Verse 16, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. Now when it says that, that Jerusalem takes some of their garments, where did these garments come from? The whole idea here is that they make this beautiful place for their trysts between them and their lovers, but out of what? Out of all of the beautiful clothing that they've been given, right? Um, made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. Notice there that word shrine, that's, that's not prostitution language. That's cultic language, right? That's religious language. We can see here that, uh, that what's going on is idolatry proper, even though it's put in terms of unfaithfulness. And it continues on here in verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set before them a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And so all the good gifts of God, they offer up idolatrously to these false gods. Now, it pushes even further, verse 20, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, 
and these you sacrifice to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? Now, I'd mentioned to you earlier that in some places here, Ezekiel is pushing beyond the historical into the allegorical, but this is not one of those places. This is talking about a specific idolatrous act, the worship of Molech, which demanded child sacrifice. And this is one of the few times it comes up in the prophets where God doesn't add, uh, which I never asked for, nor would I ever ask for, to emphasize how heinous this crime was. But it's even more heinous, isn't it, when you put it in the context of God as faithful husband and father to these children that they sacrificed? Now, that's always true. All children are, in a sense, God's children who he loves and he cares for. So as we treat them, so we treat his offspring. That's true. Um, But here, when we think of it in the context of of a husband's wife, uh, it's a horrible thing. Verse 22, and in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Now, in the Hebrew mind, did not remember is not a statement of amnesia, okay? The idea isn't here that one day this woman woke up with a broken brain and forgot she had a husband and behaved like she didn't. The idea is that she acted as if these things were not memorable, were not significant, okay? To not remember in the Hebrew mind is not to bring to mind, not to think about, not to react and respond to. To put it out of your mind, to ignore it. Okay. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. Now, the translators are trying to be prudent there by saying offering yourselves, but literally in the Hebrew, it's spreading your legs. It's it's very explicit. It's not just a sign that says, uh, you know, erotic massage or something like that. It's full-on exposure to attract customers. In fact, it's hard not to read this verse and seeing what started as infidelity now turning into industry. Do you see that? Now they're setting up franchises of this sexual infidelity in every place. And then it expands out of the nation. You also, verse 26, played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. Again there, the translators are toning it back. What it says in the Hebrew there is your largely endowed neighbors or your neighbors with very large penises would be a word-for-word translation here. It's shocking. It's disturbing. Now, in terms of why it says that particularly about the Egyptians, remember what it was about Egypt that attracted Israel. It was their power, their strength, their presumable army strength. In other words, their very big swords. Okay? That's the idea that Ezekiel is playing with here. But remember that in those days, an alliance with another nation was a theological decision. Because it was the gods who brought about victory. And so making an allegiance was needing the gods of these other nations. And so it was idolatrous in this way. So it spreads to Egypt. And then verse 27, Behold, therefore I stretched out my hand against you 
and I diminished all your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughter of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Okay. Now, if you go back and read Israel's history, this is exactly what starts to happen. The Philistines become a significant thorn in the side of Israel. God uses them to discipline Israel. But notice it says, who, the Philistines, were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Okay. Now, if you read through the history of 1 Samuel through Second uh, Kings, all the way through that, you'll sometimes encounter the consistent and continual um, insult that Israel gives of the Philistines, that they are uncircumcised, right? That's what David says about Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistine. And even today, sometimes you'll hear that language in really erudite circles, you know, for somebody who's uncultured. But the idea here is even the Philistines look at that behavior and go, yuck, right? That's the idea. It's similar to what Paul is concerned about with the Corinthians when he says, now it's come to my hearing that there's a behavior going on within your church that even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate, specifically that a man is having an, uh, an affair with his own stepmother, right? It's that type of an idea. He says, your behavior got so lewd, so inappropriate, that even, even those you know, who didn't have high moral standards were shocked. Verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. Remember King Ahaz, who's thinking of making a deal with the Assyrians to hold off the Babylonians, right? These are the things that are, that are historically leading to this. And then you multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, which is Babylon, and even with this you were not satisfied. Like I said, if we were to take this story as being biographical and literal, it's not just explicit, it's, uh, it's sick. It's what we would call nymphomania. It's an inexhaustible, insatiable sexual desire uh, that is bent on expanding every avenue. And again, don't just read it that way, but read it as juxtaposed to the beginning. For a lot of us, when we think about sexual affairs and adultery, infidelity in these things, we can at least imagine the possibility that those people are looking for something that they don't have at home. That they're looking for love because they haven't yet found it. Okay. But that doesn't make any sense here. This is not a woman trying to cope with a bad husband. It's, it's, uh, it's, on its head. In fact, look at what he says in verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute in this one way because you scorned payment. He says, you didn't do it for the money. In fact, as we've already seen, the payment went to the lovers. It's not a shop that sets up that says sex for money. It's a shop that sets up and says, I'll pay for sex, right? It's oriented in a completely different way. And so here, God is the giver, but all of these other paramours are takers. They're predatorial. And that's exactly what Israel seems to be interested in, what they're pursuing. Verse 32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband, 
Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were, were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited for you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. So this is the indictment against Israel. This is their history, and notice it's progressively and progressively worse. And then we get the judgment here in verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out, and your nakedness uncovered, and your whoring with your lovers, and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, and those you loved, and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman who commit adultery and shed blood or judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And so he says here that the judgment is going to be two things. Uh, one, it's going to be the judgment of a adulterer and a murderer, which Ezekiel has just made a case that both spiritually, adultery is what has taken place, and then physically, murder has actually taken place with the sacrifice of these children. Um, but the second thing is here, he says, effectively, I'm going to give you over to all of your lovers. As I mentioned earlier, by nature, what type of men are responding to this request, request you know, in the back pages of the newspaper? They're predators. They're not here to give or to love in the proper sense or at all. They are takers. They are devourers. They are consumers. They are uh, there to intentionally take advantage of the woman. And so to a degree here, God doesn't just bring just sentence, but in a sense, he just surrenders them to the inevitable consequence of their choices. He continues here, verse 39, I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. So notice, in the beginning, it was God who was active. Everyone else is passive. And then it's Jerusalem that's active and the nations and God are passive. And now it's Jerusalem who's passive and it's the nations who are active. And so they destroy these, um, you know, these houses of prostitution. Continues here, they shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you to stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you and I will be calm and be no more angry. Which is basically just speaking of the satiation of God's judgment, right? That it will be final and total and complete and done. But then notice the root cause of all this. And again, this is the imbalance of the whole chapter, verse 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, 
I have returned the deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? All right. So the, the horror of Israel's crimes is not just in the analogy and the infidelity. It's in the ingratitude. It's that for every gift that God gave Jerusalem, they utilize those gifts to love and even to pay for the love of other lovers. This is a dark and damning indictment of Israel. But it's not just of Israel. In fact, I think you could make the case that basically the very first human sins, the sins of Adam and Eve, follows this exact same parallel. God creates Adam and Eve not because he has to, not because he needs to, but just as a gift. He creates an entire world full of gifts with sun uh, you know, and flowers and color and warmth and potential for music and all of these things. He endows them with the ability to harness and utilize all that he's built. He places them in a garden full of fruit to eat, and he gives them the greatest gift, which is the gift of relationship. And he says, I've made you just to be with me. And in response, Adam and Eve choose a different route. Instead of just receiving in gratitude the gifts that they've given, the one thing they want is the one thing God has not given them. Instead of rejoicing in the God who's been so good to them, they instead want to be their own gods, go their own ways, make their own choices. And in the same way that there is a, an ironic idiocy in Ezekiel 16 here, where whatever, whatever they're looking for is what they left at home to begin with. In the same way, what, what is promised to Adam and Eve that looks like freedom is actually slavery. There's always and consistently a foolishness to sin. In fact, this is truly and fully the human condition. This isn't just the way that Jews have responded, but ultimately, all of us as human beings have experienced that same reality of God, the gift of life, the provisions of his providence, the beauty of his creation, the possibilities of life as he's designed it. And instead of responding in gratitude and orienting back to him and pursuing the one who has done these good things, we turn away from him, we go our own way, we make our own plans, we, we set up our own false gods and worship them. And even though they take and take and take, our philosophy is just, we just need to add another Thing. We just add another thing to the list. We go in every direction except the one from which we came. And so here, with Israel, God gives them over to the nations and the gods of the nations that they had worshipped. With Adam and Eve, they experienced the death that corresponds with sin. Paul says the same thing about all humanity in Romans 1. Because of their ingratitude, because they resist and suppress the truth and unrighteousness and choose to worship the created things instead of the creator himself, therefore, Paul says three times in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over. God let them go. 
God surrendered them to walk the path that they were walking. Now, why does Ezekiel need to lay it on so thick? Why does he need to tell this whole story and tell it in a way that, let's be honest, no dignified Jew would be comfortable hearing shouted on the street as they've got their kids in tow on the way to the market, which is what this would have been. Can you imagine how many petitions there would have been to silence lewd Ezekiel and his dirty mouth, right? Israel was still very much a people who upheld not just a morality, but held to their own moral integrity. And yet he has to put these things in such a way so that they can really see what they're unwilling to see. But he's not done yet. He continues, and he uses a slightly different angle. So the first one was to view Jerusalem as a wife, and an unfaithful one at that. The next one is to view Jerusalem as a daughter. Okay, look at verse 44. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you like mother, like daughter. I assume you get the suggestion there, right? I I mean, I think I've heard this phrase come out of people's mouths before, but we might say the nut doesn't fall too far from the tree and we'd be getting at the same point. The point is, you're just like your mom. Surprise, surprise, you turned out just like her. Now remember where this story begins, right? Your mother was a Canaanite. And he says, you proved who you were all along. You demonstrated your true nature. Verse 45, you are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husband and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Now, that elder sister is a pretty obvious place to go, right? If he's talking about Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, to say you have an older sister and she made the same mistakes and refer to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, that's what we'd expect. But to loop Sodom into the family and call that the younger sister is weird for a couple of reasons. One, Sodom is a pre-existing city before there was an Israel. So calling Sodom the younger sister is a little bit surprising. And then second, Sodom were, uh, you know, contemporaries to the Canaanites in the land of Israel. Uh, They are not Jewish. They are not like um, the Amorites that come out of the line of Lot. They aren't like the Edomites that come out of Jacob and Esau, right? This is a pre-existing culture that Abraham just finds existing in the land. Why here are they tied as family? Obviously, it's for two reasons. In fact, if you want to understand the age here, because also Jerusalem predates Samaria, the age is just north to south. So there's the oldest in the north, that's Samaria, and then there's Jerusalem, and then all the way down in the Dead Sea, there's Sodom. It's just walking down the line, and what makes them family is two things. One, general vicinity. They're all around each other. Uh, And two, their behavior. That's the whole point but it is supposed to be a spit take, a double take, right? It's supposed to go, wait, who? Sodom? Right, being lumped in the same category of Sodom, if you're a Bible reader, is not a good place to be. Jesus does this in his ministry with a town called Capernaum. 
He says, woe to you, Capernaum, because unlike your sister Sodom, it's not a good place to be. It's not a good association to make. But he hasn't pushed it as far. He says here, you're just like your sisters. You're just like your mom, verse 47. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all of your ways. He says you were even worse. Verse 48, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done and you, as you and your daughters have done. And he says, he's, now he's not, he's not giving Sodom a, a moral grade A, right? But he is making a comparison. And he says, you've gone above and beyond, right? You're worse than even Sodom, I think would be a good way to convey the idea here. Worse than even Sodom. And then notice we get a reminder of who Sodom was and what brought that city to judgment. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. Now, does that indictment come as a surprise to you? If you go back and you read Genesis 18 and 19, these things are not front page news in those passages. But they are implied. In fact, when God is talking to Abraham, he says that I from heaven have heard a report of Sodom and those they have taken advantage of have cried out to me. Right? So God is responding to an oppressive and an unjust culture. But the list he makes here, read it again and, and ask ourselves how far is our family tree removed in our cities from Sodom? He says again in verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Right? And it's, it's an expanding economic gap. It's wealth uh, and excess juxtaposed against poverty. I was reading a sermon from Martin Luther, Jun uh, Martin Luther King Jr. this week. And he was talking about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he, he juxtaposed the first half of that story where Lazarus is living, you know, by the mailbox of this rich man, just right out on the street. And the second half of the story where they've both died and there is an unbridgeable gap between them. And he made the most fascinating point. He said, you know, there was an unbridgeable gap between them in life as well. But it's not that the distance couldn't be crossed, it's that the rich man wouldn't cross it. And because he wouldn't cross it, he can't cross to him now. And I thought that was a really insightful point. The divide was there the whole time. But it was only a temporal, temporary time that it could be crossed. But here, Sodom's sins are listed primarily in economic terms. Now there are some who have read this and gone, Look, we can't talk about sexual sins in Sodom and Gomorrah as being primary or even significant or leading to judgment. Homosexuality doesn't seem to be an issue to Ezekiel. In fact, the sins that he really concerns himself with are, are ones that, you know, haughty, anti-homophobe type Christians should watch themselves for. 
Now, I think actually in many ways that critique is appropriate. We could very clearly say that what happens in the book of Genesis is not the sole sin of Sodom. I think you could even suggest it's not the worst sin of Sodom. But it is the last sin of Sodom. And Ezekiel makes a similar point too. What many people miss when they use Ezekiel's interpretation of this story, which by the way is a good principle to read the Bible through the Bible. What many people miss is verse 50. They were haughty and they did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now I mentioned to you earlier that this word abomination or abominable, toabah, runs all through the book of Leviticus. And it also is heavily present in Ezekiel. And that's what we would expect because Ezekiel is a Levitical priest. And so a lot of his understanding of what's going on in Israel is read through the book he's most familiar with in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. You may remember a few chapters ago we talked about how he quoted extensively from Leviticus chapter 26. But here's something that's interesting. Despite abominable as an adjective throwing up, showing up throughout this passage and abominations plural, throwing up, showing up multiple times throughout this passage and throughout the book entirely. This is the only place in Ezekiel chapter 16 where he refers to the abomination. And again, your translators don't always catch this, but that's what it is in the Hebrew. Now, the reason why that is significant is because we only find the abomination in the singular that way in two places in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. And both of them refer to a man lying with a man as with a woman. Okay. In other words, Ezekiel here is referencing that reality of the Genesis 18 story with this term in a relatively clear way. He couldn't be clearer as a Levitical priest. He uses the technical term, if you will. Okay. Now, just since we're on the topic, and I hate to do this poorly, it is also worth pointing out that generally when we talk about the, uh, the viability of homosexual sex for Christians today, we are not talking about what happens in Genesis 18. We're talking about something very different. Genesis 18 is uh, a gang rape put on by an entire city of men of foreigners. That is not loving, it's not consensual, right? It's not mutual. Those are really significant. Okay. The issue is not, again, that, that what happens in Sodom is merely about homosexual sex. It's about more than that. But when Ezekiel reads it, it does include that. And it is significant to him. Significant enough to use this language and not a different language to refer to it. Now, interestingly enough, because Paul also references homosexuality as an illustrative sin in Romans chapter 1. He does it in the same context that we find here. Specifically, the context of God as creator and ingratitude. Now, I want to be really careful here. Because Paul is not talking about individual sinners in Romans chapter 1. In fact, he's not talking about individual people who commit homosexual acts in Romans chapter 1 at all. He's talking about all culture, and he just chooses this one illustration. But why that one? Why is that the one that he spends a couple of verses on to highlight and illustrate? It's because for Paul, that is against the grain of creation's obvious design. 
the parody of man and women. Not P-A-R-O-D-Y, P-A-I-R-T-Y, the parody. The male and female, biological, as designed, that leads to procreation and all of life. He's only illustrating, not because it's the worst sin, but because it's a relatively illustrative sin of the upheaval of God's good creation design. It doesn't say anything significant about the horror of those people who act that way, because remember, in Romans, what does Paul do next? And he says, and who are you who judge such people and yet do your own sins? He's going after the self-righteous and the religious. That's his primary target. In the same way here, he says, you're worse, Jerusalem, than Sodom. Is that because they had done a similar you know, homosexual gang rape act? No. The idea here is not that it was the worst sin of Sodom. And that's something that the church should really understand is, is to not fall into two ditches. Uh, one is to make homosexual sin the sin or the unforgivable sin or the abominable sin. We love to throw that word around. Okay. But the other mistake is to to um, listen to this interpretation of the Bible that tries to disconnect these things and say, actually, the Bible doesn't address what we mean when we talk about homosexuality at all. And the primary thing that has led me to that conclusion after much study is, is what, in a big word, I would call the intertextuality. But in a small word, I would just talk about the wovenness of Scripture. Okay. Here's what I mean that when Leviticus talks about this, it does it in the language of Genesis chapter one. So it's not when a man lies with a man as with a woman, it's when a male lies with a female as with a male, or male lies with a male as with a female. That's Genesis 1.28. God made them male and female. The emphasis there, like Paul in Romans one, is on creation. When Ezekiel talks about these things, he uses the language of Leviticus to do so. When Paul talks about these things, he uses the reference to Genesis and Leviticus to do so. In fact, when Paul uses a word that in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, it's two words actually, and we translate it men who practice homosexuality uh, in uh, the ESV. One of the words there, arsenokoites, is a compound word that didn't exist before the days of Paul. He coins it. He coins it like we always coin compound words, right? We take two words, and because we use them together, they just squish together and become one word. The two words are man and bed. Man better, okay? Which is why we translate it the way we do. But where does he get it from? Arson and koites are the Greek words that are used to lay with a man in Leviticus 18 and 20. So again, he's reading... Leviticus and speaking through that lens. Do you see how these all connect? How they're interconnected? The issue is not that same-sex attraction damns any more than an attraction to anything else against God's will damns. That's not the issue at hand here. But if the question is, what is the morality of this behavior in the eyes of God and in the Bible, there is a consistent witness from Genesis to Romans one that's interconnected and related. But again, for the church to make that primary or to use it to nurse our own quiet and respectable sins would just be to fall into the trap of Ezekiel and Romans itself. 
there's that silly saying that people who get picked on in elementary school point out, you know, that, that anytime you accuse someone with your finger, four fingers point back at you or three or whatever it is. There's a reality to this handling of the text. It's something that we should keep in mind. Who are you who judge, Paul asks. And he says, compared to the sins of Sodom, you were worse. He says, so I removed them into verse 50 there when I saw it. He says, Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they and have made your sister appear righteous by all the abominations that you've committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you, so be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you've made your sisters appear righteous. So he's trying to bring about shame. He's trying to get them to see their history in light of these things. It's very easy for them to condemn Sodom. It's very easy for them to commit, condemn Samaria. And let me remind you that in the last few years of the northern tribes' lives, they get kind of combative with Judea. They actually threaten the kings of Judah at one point and are going to come in and encroach on their land, and they're one of the enemies. And so you can imagine how they felt when Assyria took them away. Serves you right. It's about time. I knew there was justice in the universe, right? Commentary like this. But now he says, but don't you see? Don't you see, you know, that in the words of Jesus, the log in your own eye completely eclipses the speck in your brothers? Don't you see that the sins of your sister is nothing, totally eclipsed by your own behavior? And if Ezekiel wasn't done pushing the buttons far enough, look at what he does next in verse 53. He says, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. Now he's going to go on and say, I'll restore yours too. But this is, this is amazing because it does two things at once. One, there's nothing to call this restoration than grace. Right? Maybe you could call it abundant grace. right? Because everything in the beginning was grace. Jerusalem in birth in life, in maturity, in beauty, all grace. Here he says, but I'm going to restore you. He says the same thing amazingly, not just about Samaria here, but about Sodom. I'm going to restore you. But not only is it an expression of abundant grace, it's a challenging one. There is no way for those in Jerusalem to maintain their self-righteousness Because what's the temptation? Sodom? Them? You're going to restore them? Right? This is the elder brother in Jesus' parable. You slayed the fatted calf for him? But what does it really betray? It betrays that they still can't see their own sins with proper perspective. One of the things that God's abundant grace on those you don't appreciate, those you don't like, those who have mistreated you, one of the ones it does is it lays bare what you really believe about why God is good to you. And so the only way that they can receive the grace they so desperately need is to welcome it for those they don't like.
I love this ending because it's so surprising. The indictment is so thick. In fact, in the picture of judgment earlier, did you see any room for restoration? All we saw was a mutilated corpse of an unfaithful woman. And yet God says, but I still have restoration planned for you. He says again in verse 53, I'll restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. In other words, there's going to be a right and proper shame that follows this restoration. But I don't think it's the shame of, you know, like go back to that story of the two sons and the man that Jesus tells So the prodigal, he goes out, he goes his way, he realizes he's really messed up. And so he comes home with a plan B. He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, so just treat me like one of your servants. But with God, there isn't a plan B. There's a full restoration. There's a bringing back. Now, in one sense, if the son receives that, if he goes to the party, if he enters in and he enjoys that and he's embraced by his father, is there shame there? In one sense, absolutely not. The identity is fully restored. It's above and beyond what he could ask or think. But there is a shame, isn't there? Not the one that creates distance or desperation, but it's a sheepishness. It just makes your original sin all the more foolish more regrettable. Just because God has forgiven us doesn't mean we don't regret our sins. Doesn't mean we now look back on our, you know, early years fondly and we go, oh, silly Justin. Those were the days before you knew better. That's not how it is at all. When I became a Christian, I had nightmares about the early chapters of my life for years. There's a right and healthy shame. It's the shame of weighing your life in the balance like we saw and seeing how silly the scales were, how you looked every place but where love was, how you neglected every opportunity to express gratitude, the only one who is worthy of such gratitude. And so, yes, it is ashamed of all that they have done, but that's not all. Verse 55, as for your sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you've become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines and all those who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. But notice verse 59, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as I have done with you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Why? Why does God bring about grace? when the first time it was despised and rejected, scorned, and spat upon. It's because he still remembers the covenant. It's because he's still committed to keeping it. This is the reason why Paul in Romans 6, as he's wrestling with the reality of our own sin, comes to this conclusion. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
it stems from the character of God and his commitment to Israel, which even though their unfaithfulness, their breaking the covenant has led to consequence, he hasn't abandoned the covenant. Then verse 61, then you'll remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. Now that's a strange familial change, isn't it? I'm going to take your sisters and give them back to you as daughters. Right? The idea here is those who Israel despised, the, the enemies of them and therefore the enemies of God, are going to become Israel's children. They're going to receive them and care for them and love them and take them as their own. And he says, verse 62, he says, I'll give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. He says, for you, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Now, to understand that last sentence there, we have to remember why it is this whole passage is needed. It's because Israel still thinks what's going on is unfair. It's unjust. When it says here, I'm going to shut your mouth, it's because they're complaining. It's because they're criticizing God. It's because they're laying, as we'll see in the next chapter, the problems at God's feet when it's actually their feet that got them where they are today. They've not yet seen that God is just, faithful, true, and that they are the ones that have been unfaithful. Let's continue into chapter 17. Now, 17, 18, and 19 all function together. They all cover basically the same ground. Um, quite a lot of it follows the same uh, parabolic uh, approach that we've already seen where Ezekiel is just laying out one image after another to make things clear. So let's look at the first one here in chapter 17, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. And so what is a riddle here? What is a parable? The idea is it's something that takes a little bit of meditation to understand. It's a puzzle you have to solve. You have to put together the pieces and we've talked about how parables are helpful because people who would be so hard-hearted they wouldn't listen to it said outright will at least go home with the possibility of thinking through something, right? A parable is the type of thing that when it clicks, you're already caught in the crosshair of the truth that it's presenting. And the idea here with a riddle is, is a little bit, I would suggest to you, um, poking fun at Israel, because this isn't a hard riddle. It's pretty easy, and that's the point. What God wants to convey here should be so obvious. Okay. It's not a riddle at all. It's common sense. Verse 3, Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of a cedar. Okay. So this big, beautiful eagle flies in to the forests of Lebanon, the most beautiful forest around, and one of the highest trees, he clips a branch off the top of this cedar. Verse 4, he broke off the topmost of its young twig and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and he planted it in fertile soil. 
He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became low, spreading vine, and its branches turned towards him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine, and it produced branches and put out boughs. Now, this is a, a very strange parable because it's not traditional actions. A farmer goes out to sow, Jesus says, and he sows like a farmer. But here, an eagle goes out and snatches this branch, and he's not building a nest or anything eagly at all. He's planting a vineyard. In fact, suddenly this branch morphs into a vine, and the idea here is that he's cultivating a garden. But the pictures here aren't really about the appropriate relationship between the branch and the eagle. They're about the personification of these two people. And so we have this royal, powerful, strong, predatorial, kingly figure. And then we have this growing plant, right? And so the plant grows, verse 7, and there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. Now, you, this is subtle, but catch it. With the first eagle, it's a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, but this eagle has just great wings and much plumage, okay? In other words, it's not disparaging this eagle, but it's not the first eagle. There's praise here, but it's faint praise. Okay. That presents the juxtaposition of what happens. So there's this other eagle, this interloper, and behold, the vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches towards him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. So despite the fact that it's given everything it needs to grow, it sees this lesser impressive eagle and says, hey buddy, why don't, why don't you take care of me? You look strong, you look powerful, you look like a good gardener. Like we saw with the first story, the vine has everything it needs. It has every advantage, and it goes to one who's clearly not as good of a candidate, and in doing so, risks the wrath of its own savior, of its own provider. Now, here's the thing. If that seems like we're talking about God and idols, that would be an interesting way and a proper way to read this, but that's not what we're talking about here, as we see in verse 9. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up by his roots and cut off the fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? And so the parable is almost one of, of covetousness and of envy. I always think of that parable about the dog, uh, the story about the dog who's carrying a bone in his mouth, and he comes to a body of water, and he sees a bigger bone reflected in the water. And so he drops the little bone to get the big bone and loses them both, right? It's got kind of that feel to it, but it's not about covetousness, it's about the foolishness, right? Because that dog got his own bone. He doesn't realize he's his own worst enemy. But here, there's a neglect of a good for a worse and expecting indifference from the first eagle, right? If we could put a word in chapter 16 and a word here that would describe both of them, it's the word jealousy, How's the eagle going to feel about this? The eagle who did all the work, the eagle who, who chose, the eagle who planted, the eagle who gave everything they needed. He says, will it thrive? Will it flourish? 
He says, it will not take strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Verse 10, behold, it's planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither, wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? In other words, imagine the eagle goes, all right, fine, you don't want my help. Pulls it up out of the garden, drops it in the wilderness and says, you're on your own now, go for it. But notice the interpretation here in verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to Babylon. So who's the eagle here? Nebuchadnezzar. He's the big, beautiful, glorious, vastly plumed bird, okay? Which actually is, is something we find in the book of Daniel too, right? When, when the king has the vision of the statue that starts with a head of gold and then chest of silver and all the way down to the clay feet, who's the gold? Nebuchadnezzar is. That's the beginning. But notice what happens here. Remember the history. So the king takes Jerusalem under Jehoiachin takes the cream of the crop, all the elders and the royalty, and reestablishes them in Babylon. Now, this is where the parable gets a little bit weird. At the same time, he also appoints a king, Zedekiah, over Jerusalem and leaves Jerusalem intact. Okay. So we can look at the story and we can see the planting in a land of merchants, but it's also really about Zedekiah's behavior. And so, verse 13, he took one of the royal offspring, that's the branch, this is Zedekiah, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. Okay, so notice here, Zedekiah serves at the, uh, at the request of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who puts him on the throne. Now, he could have just wiped out Jerusalem. He's a conqueror. He had the city surrounded. Instead, he says, I'm going to leave here leadership of your own people, and you're just going to make a vow to me as a vassal. You work for me. Compared to total annihilation, this is a pretty sweet deal. In fact, Babylon's policy was relatively positive to the people they conquered once the war was over. They invested in those cultures. They gave them every opportunity. Remember, Jeremiah tells those living in Babylon, in the welfare of Babylon is the welfare of you. So settle down, plant, build fields and houses, have children. But here's the issue. Zedekiah takes an oath. He raises his right hand and stands before the king and says, I am your vassal. I work at your behest. And then what happens? Verse 14, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they may not, might give him horses and a large army. So here he is living out his days as a vassal. And then he goes, Egypt, they're an eagle too. They're not as big or as powerful, but maybe I can reach out and they'll be my savior. Maybe they'll come to my aid. But the truth is, and this is exactly what happens in history, Egypt is no Babylon and Pharaoh is no Nebuchadnezzar and they're completely routed. Israel was foolish to trust in it, but it's more than foolishness, it's unfaithfulness. Now here's one thing that you may not understand about this story that is significant. Babylon's policy, like most conquerors or most that set up feudal or vassal systems in the ancient world, didn't just make you vow according to their gods, but according to yours. So Zedekiah, with his own mouth, would, said, would have said, I swear before Jehovah to be faithful unto you. Okay? 
and that'll become important in a second. So verse 15, but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? In other words, how is Nebuchadnezzar going to feel about this? Indifferent? He's going to be angry. He's going to say, this is the thanks that I get. He's going to say, I gave you this chance and you used it to betray me. Okay, that's the idea here. Verse 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Verse 17, Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. Now, this is actually pretty striking. God here is bothered that a Jewish king didn't keep his word to a pagan conqueror. Right? It's surprising. Like I said, we can make a little bit of sense of it when we realize he would have sworn in the name of God. In other words, God was the co-signer of this agreement. His reputation is dragged along with Zedekiah's behavior. But this is something that we see consistently in Scripture. Remember Joshua and the Gibeonites? So Joshua is moving his army through the land. He's conquering one Canaanite city after another. And the Gibeonites, who are just a valley removed go, oh, this is not good. We should cut a deal. And the elders go, yeah, but why would he make a deal with us? What do we have to offer? We, we want to live in the land. They want the land. It's not going to work. And he goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trick them. We're going to go, but we're going to go in our old and raggedy clothes with our worn-out sandals. We're going to take weak old bread. And when we come, we're going to say, man, we heard from so far away about how great you are and how strong you are. And so we don't live anywhere near here, but we want to make a non-aggression pact. And Joshua is kind of puffed up and he goes, sounds great, shakes hands. And God says, you're going to keep that promise. And he comes over and he sees in the next valley all the Gibeonites and realizes his mistake. But God holds him to that promise. In fact, it's one of the reasons why Saul gets in trouble. Because he attacks them. God says, keep your promise. In Psalm 15, which, by the way, is, is a psalm worth meditating, it talks about the one who is worthy to ascend the mountain of Zion. In other words, what does a life that honors God look like? And it, it lists a bunch of things, but the one that always sticks out to me is this one. The one who makes a promise and keeps it to his own harm. Right? Maybe you didn't have all the information. Maybe they knew something you didn't. Maybe they were honestly taking advantage of you. But Jesus says, let our yes be yes and our no be no. No backseas, you know. The idea here is, is one of faithfulness because God cares more about our character than our circumstances. And so it's surprising, it's shocking here, but there's more going on than this. He's not just saying, I can't believe you're not a promise keeper. He's saying, boy, this all sounds real familiar. That's why he says, it's my oath you broke and my covenant. Like we saw, we were assuming that the, that the eagle would be God. And in a way, that's an appropriate way to read this. 
Why does Zedekiah break the covenant? Because he's a covenant breaker. He was already doing it with, uh, with God. That's what led Nebuchadnezzar's judgment. But instead of turning back to God, he turns to Egypt. He makes an allegiance with the gods of Babylon. God gives them over, like we saw in chapter 16, to the consequences of that. And he still hasn't learned the lesson. That's what's going on here. And so he continues here. He says in verse 20, I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon to enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he's committed against me. You see that? He doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar will spread his net and bring you to Babylon and judge you. He says, I'm going to do that. And all the pick, verse 21, of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself. And again, we get to the final and totally of judgment. It's over. And then there's more. And listen to the promise that's made here in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Remember in the other story, the eagle plants it and the whole goal is for it to stay a humble vine. A grateful and a growing and a flourishing, but just a vine. He says, but I'm going to take a branch from the tree and I'm going to put it on a lofty mountain and it's going to grow into a big cedar. In fact, notice what he says. He says, under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Bird of every sort will nest. In other words, he says, I'm still going to make a kingdom. I'm still going to make it out of Israel. I'm going to find a nice young branch. It won't be the top of the cedar where Zedekiah was, but a young branch, and I'm going to plant it, and it will grow into a worldwide kingdom. Now, again, um, when we read Daniel, we find this same language. And so Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as a great tree under which all the animals of the fields and the birds of the airs nest in its branches, right? It covers all of them. And so we see the same language here. But it's also the language Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of any seed. But when you plant in the ground, it grows into a great bush and the birds of the air nest in its branches. In other words, Jesus says, you remember what Ezekiel talked about? It's here. It's me. I'm the branch. And so God promises here he still has a plan for Israel. He still is moving towards glory and these things. He still is going to be faithful. And here we have a reference to what he's going to do in the Messiah, what he's going to do in Jesus. In fact, verse 24, all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. All the other nations, they'll get the picture. I bring low the high tree and make the high, high the low tree, dry up the green and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Again, we're, we're going to finish there tonight, but why is God faithful? Because he's faithful. Why is he going to do this? He says, because I am the Lord, because I have spoken, and because I will do it. He's committed to the plan, and he'll be faithful to carry it out. And here's the thing I love about this. We'll see more of this next week. But it means that God's grace can be trusted. 
means that where you are right now, it can be received, it can be sought after, it can be asked for, it can be welcomed. Now, you can't use it presumptuously. You can't just keep it in your pocket like you would a get-out-of-jail card free and go on with your merry way. But as we'll see uh, in the next chapter, God says, I am the God of life. That's my end game. That's my goal. Any path that leads to life, that's the one I want you to take. That's where I'm trying to get you. That's what I'm trying to do for you. And here in, again, the most treacherous description of Israel's sin and the most, you know, graphic depiction of its judgment, in the storm of God's wrath, there's still this silver lining. Nevertheless, and after all these things, I will restore you and your sister Sodom. I will replant you and it will grow into a great kingdom and all will know. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think of ourselves as stupid people. But there's a stupidity of backsliding, of sin and rebellion. It's stupid, Lord, because we cannot escape your judgment. Because we cannot make a greater God for ourselves that will defend us against your justice. But it's also stupid because you're so good. Because all we have to make our stand against you. Every resource we pile together in our rebellion is your good and gracious gift. And somehow, even doubly so, Lord, our sins are stupid because of your great and compassionate response. Because you did something in Jesus that was greater than just bringing about the judgment that you brought on your unfaithful wife, Lord. Instead, the faithful husband came and took the punishment. Instead, he bore all of the sin upon himself, endured all of it, and suffered the death of a criminal. As one was, who was cursed by God and hung on a tree. And who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the ignorance of sin, Lord. I thank you that you don't just call us to know our sinfulness. You call us to know that you are God. And that means your justice. And it means your omnipotence. But it also means your abundant and inexhaustible grace. feel like we can read what we read tonight and finish it with the words of John in 1 John. I have written these things so that you may not sin. But even there, John can't stop himself, and he continues, and he says, and if you do sin, there's a sacrifice for that. Jesus, who was our propitiation, who spared us from the wrath of God. We praise you for that, Jesus. We thank you for your word tonight, Father. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.